Oncology Data Advisor. For this interview in honor of Testicular Cancer Awareness Month, I'm joined by Dr. Sam Kaffenberger. I'm Sam Kaffenberger. I'm one of the urologic oncologists here at the University of Michigan um, at the Rogo Cancer Center here. Um, I've been practicing for about six years now. I uh, did my residency at Vanderbilt University in, in Nashville and did my fellowship at Sloan Kettering in New York City and, and have been on faculty here for since 2016. Um, I, I specialize in, in testis cancer here as well as other complex retroperitoneal surgery. Um, and, and one of my big clinical interests is, is improving the care of, of patients with testis cancer. So in personalizing treatment for patients with testicular cancer, what are some of the factors that should be considered? Yeah, you know, I think, I think every patient that we see with testis cancer is somewhat unique. You know, this is um, a cancer usually of young men, although not always. And, and therefore, um, there are some special considerations that are always in play in terms of fertility preservation. And, and, you know, the name of the game in testis cancer, because it's been so successful over the years, thanks to the efforts of, of many before, um, is, is trying to minimize toxicity of treatment. So you're doing the least amount possible to, to make sure that patients get cured. And, and therefore, you know, a, real, a nuanced approach is really important for, for each individual patient. Um, we, we try to do everything we possible, possibly can to, to make sure that each patient gets the exact you know, guideline concordant treatment. Um, and, and I think you know, for, for the folks who are taking care of, of patients in testis cancer, um, you know, there, there really is some true nuance in the management of these patients. Um, and you know, these are things like, you know, for, for patients who come in with elevated tumor markers after the orchiectomy, making sure that you give them time for their markers to go as down as far as possible before moving on to the next step in therapy. Um, these are, these are critical things because, you know, we, we may jump too soon to, to give too many treatments otherwise. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of this also making sure that we offer patients, uh, the option for fertility preservation or sperm preservation prior to embarking on certain treatments like chemotherapy and, and surgery afterwards. So, you know, I think for, for most patients with testis cancer, um, they present stage one early on in the disease and, and most are cured with just, just removal of the testicle by itself. Um, and for everyone else, we just have to make sure that we're, we're doing the right thing by these patients. Um, I, you know, I tell all the patients who come see me, second, third opinions are always a good thing, um, even the ones who are seeing me for the first time. And, and I think, um, you know, having patients seen at a, at a high volume center is, is sometimes helpful um, just to make sure that they're on the right track. Um, so so individualized approach is, is, is key for testis cancer. Great, thank you. So, what are some of the new uh, the new investigation that's underway in testicular cancer surgery? Yeah, I think you know the, the big things that that are have been sort of in discussion for for a lot of urologic cancers and probably you know a lot of surgery in general is is the involvement of minimally invasive surgery. And I think you know even the step before that, um, really trying to select the patients who actually need this surgery. So, you know, for the patients with stage one testis cancer, there are a number of things that are that are under investigation, including microRNAs, um, like microRNA 371 and, and things like this to, to try to really predict which patients have disease and which patients don't at the time of surgery. Um, because there's no question that if we're doing surgery for patients in stage one, there are, are a large number of patients who are overtreated by definition, you know, 
um, even patients with, with higher risk disease. So stage 1B disease who maybe have a 50% chance of having a relapse, that still is 50% of patients who are being over-treated with surgery. Um, ultimately, our goal is to, to cure everybody. And the second goal is to prevent some of the long-term toxicities that, that come with things like chemotherapy. But there's also true that surgery itself carries risk. And, and we want to minimize that to the best of our ability to do so. So that's where some of the new things like microRNAs come, come into play. And, and that's an exciting area. There, you know, there are clinical trials that are ongoing for this. Um, so, so I think that's probably the future in addition to the current tumor markers that we have. When we go to the actual you know, form of surgery itself, um, then you know, the question becomes, is there a role for, for the use of minimally invasive or robotic surgery? Um, and I think, you know, you know, I think it's critical that um, this is done by, by experienced surgeons. And I think it's also critical that we make sure that we maintain the concepts that are in place for good open surgery, because um, I think where we can really hurt individual patients is if we do inadequate surgery. So, you know, the lymph node dissection has to be just as thorough as it is with open surgery. And, you know, if, if we're talking about sparing nerves for, for fertility preservation or to prevent retrograde ejaculation, um, you know, the same concepts have to be in place for, for robotic surgery. So I, I think, um, I, I obviously we urge caution. I think, you know, from, from, a, from a quality of life standpoint, you know, I think it does offer some benefits. Um, for those of you who have done robotic surgery for, for retroperitoneal lymph node dissections, you know, these patients commonly can go home on day one. There's no question that they have less pain afterwards, um, less time in the hospital, um, and, and, and experienced hands can probably have similar outcomes to open surgery. So um, I, I just, you know, patient selection as for anything else is key. Um, for patients with bigger masses after chemotherapy, when we're doing post-chemotherapy retroperitoneal lymph node dissections, um, you know, a lot of these can still be done robotically, but again, the same concepts have to be in play. Meticulous dissection, um, you know, taking the time to really clip the lymphatics, sparing the nerves when possible, and, and making sure that we take care of the surrounding structures, the ureters, you know, other arteries to the kidneys, the bowel that's close by. Um, so, so I think, again, in, in, in experienced hands, you can probably have similar outcomes, but in my opinion, this is a surgery that, that ought to be done um, at, at, with folks who have good experience doing it and, and do more than just, you know, one or two per year. Because um, again, you know, these are young guys, they have many light years left to live. We want to make sure they get cured with a minimal amount of toxicity or morbidity. Um, so that's sort of my thought here. I think, you know, I think, you know, if, if you, if you ask my thoughts of what, um, what the future looks like for, for surgery for this. And, and I, and I do think that robotics plays a role. Um, I, I think, especially for, for stage one patients, um, you know, doing adjuvant surgery or, you know, easy, um, you know, teratomas for folks who are post chemotherapy. Um, I, I think robotic surgery can, can really sort of improve the, the throughput of patients and through the hospital system and, and make their time easier smaller scars and things like that. And, and I think that does have a role for, for, for younger men. And, and I think, you know, we, we can do as good a job, but we just have to make sure that we're, we're, we, we're thoughtful about how we do it. Great. Thank you. Uh, so with all these new approaches, do you have any advice for members of the cancer care team about how to manage the side effects of treatment and surgery? Yeah. You know, I think um, um, it, it's kind of a broad question. 
um, in terms of, of managing side effects. So, you know, I, I think medical oncologists in general do, do a great job of taking care of, of, of patients with testis cancer and getting them through the chemotherapy. Um, I think, you know, one key thing is making sure that patients are getting the right chemotherapy and the right amount of chemotherapy. And that's where, you know, some experience comes in. You know, I, I, I mean, every case is, is a little bit, you know, individualized and, and, you know, making sure that we let the markers have time to mater, really trying to select which patients get four cycles of BEP versus three cycles of, of BEP. Um, I, I think that's probably the, the biggest part of minimizing toxicity with, with chemotherapy. Some of the longer term side effects, you know, are, are to some extent unavoidable for the folks who, who really need testis cancer. So guys who present with metastatic testis cancer, they need the chemotherapy. And and some of the long, long-term long side effects are unavoidable. I counsel all my guys um, with testis cancer to, to make sure that they do the best that they can to protect their bodies long-term, not to smoke, um, you know, healthy eating, exercise, appetite, things like that. Because, you know, we know that cisplatinum is not good for the cardiovascular system. These guys, you know, when they get heart attacks, they get them a decade sooner than the general population. So, you know, I think even for, for primary care docs who are taking care of patients who've had testis cancer in the past, they have to be aware of this, um, especially if they have, you know, other risk factors added on, family history of smoking, things like that. Um, you know, it may be a young guy who comes in with chest pain who might actually be having a heart attack. So, um, you know, the, the longer term consequences, you, we really have to think about them. Same thing, secondary cancers that can be caused by, you know, metoposide and things like that. So, um, but, but I think, you know, by and large, the medical oncologists, both the community and the academic centers do a great job at, at taking care of these guys. They're young. Most of these patients are young. They're resilient. They're, they're, they're tough. Um, but, but, you know, beyond the, the direct toxicities of, of chemotherapy, um, with regards to surgery, you know, I, re, I really put efforts in trying to preserve the nerves, to preserve, you know, forward flow of ejaculation wherever possible. And it's a lot easier. To, to just not do a nerve sparing surgery, you know, it saves quite a bit of time during surgery. It's a tedious dissection, but, but I think, you know, we're doing patients a disservice by, by not doing a good nerve sparing during a retroperitoneal node dissection, um, assuming that, you know, it, it's, it's doable from a, from a disease control standpoint. Um, from a surgical side, um, you know, I think robotic surgery probably does help manage some of the side effects, um, especially the short-term discomfort, pain, time in the hospital, things like that. Um, but you know, the, the critical side effects that we talk about for surgery in the short term are things like lymph leaks or chylocystitis. And um, you know, I encourage all of our, our clinicians who are taking care of this, um, you know, just meticulous clipping. Um, we at the University of Michigan do do low fat diet for, for about a month, month and a half afterwards to try to reduce the risk of having a lymph leak afterwards. There's not good data to support that. And, you know, when I see guys back at three or four weeks afterwards, and if they haven't had signs of a lymph leak, I usually relax that diet pretty quickly because, um, you know, the times that we see this, at least in my experience has been in the first couple of weeks, but, um, the other thing I try to avoid doing whenever possible is to not take the IMV or the inferior mesenteric vein during surgery. Um, but just, you know, again, just total, totally anecdotal, but, um, I think those are sort of the short-term things. Long-term, of course, we worry about, you know, long-term retrograde ejaculation that we already talked about. And then of course the lifelong risk of small bowel obstruction. Um, but, you know, otherwise in general, 
that the folks who are oftentimes getting these surgeries are, are young and, and they do shockingly well after surgery. So I, I think, you know, it's a big surgery to go through. It's, it's daunting for patients. Um, but, but I think, you know, especially in, in experienced hands, the surgery goes really well. The vast majority of the time guys are back on their feet and doing what they were doing beforehand. And, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's oftentimes a big success story, which is great news for, for patients with testis cancer. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com. Thank you.